I, I'm not quite sure why I'm, yeah, well, I'm used to it. Thank you, Nancy. Let's pray that God's word would be instilled in our hearts as we study that passage this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful. It's active. And Lord, we thank you this morning for what you're going to do as we study your word together. Lord, make this come to life to us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to look at the, the power of truth. The power of truth. Now, truth is in small supply, it seems like today. Uh, a lot of people claim to have the truth, but is there anything I can do to help that? See if your cable screwed in all the way to your thing. <laughs> There's so many things I want to say. Could just be the devil. He doesn't yeah, like us. I understand. We're going to talk about the devil today. He's a bad devil. Yes, he is. Hey, if you're a guest, everything always runs just like clockwork around here. So, in 1874 there was a Russian musician uh, who had a friend who was an artist. His artist friend passed away at the age of 39, and so this musician got a bunch of his friends together, other artisans together, and they decided to do an exhibition of this friend's paintings. And so this musician went to the exhibition and as he wandered through the exhibition and saw the various paintings, he was inspired to write a series of 10 piano pieces based on each of the different paintings that he saw in the exhibition. And it was a very creative work for its time in the 1800s because not only did he paint the pictures in music, but he also gave you traveling music as if you were walking from one painting to another. So these series of 10 piano pieces were, had interludes in them, which were the traveling music from painting to painting. So it was like going to the exhibition. Um, the musician's name was Mazorsky, and the pieces that he wrote are entitled Pictures at an Exhibition. It became his most famous work, and it was later set to an orchestra, orchestral setting, and believe it or not, you've heard a little bit of it already, uh, just kind of uh, interspersed, but you probably uh, didn't know that it also inspired something, if you've been watching the Olympics, you've heard lead into every time, because you'll hear, it's a very unique brass sounding piece, and it became one of the inspirations for many other pieces, including the Olympic theme you hear on NBC every week. So if you listen carefully, this is the last, the beginning of the last picture. It's called The Great Gate of Kiev um, by Mazorsky, and I, it's one of my favorite pieces of all time. <laughs> Thank you. 
It's about 30 minutes long. Um, just go look it up. You can see the whole thing on YouTube. It's a fantastic uh, piece of music. If a picture's worth a thousand words, then I think it's incumbent upon us. We try to look at angles of things and see pictures in them because they stick in our heads. And this morning, what I would like to do is to look at the Word of God and what I believe are three pictures that Paul paints for us about truth. Three pictures that he paints, just as Mazorsky was trying to put into music, paintings that he saw, I would like to take the Word of God and try and put it in pictures for us so that maybe we can understand and hang on to this vital idea that the truth of God is not, it's not open to compromise. And so here we go. The first picture is that of a jealous guardian. Um, and this has to do with a passion for purity. I think this will be clear as you look at chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. He says, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Again, sarcasm from Paul. Uh, in case you didn't know, he kind of is uh, playing with the church a little bit to say, this is not foolishness at all. Um, this is vital, what I'm trying to tell you. And he goes on, yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. You see, What's happening in the church in Corinth is there are these people who are coming in who are super apostles. They, that's what they're claiming. We're, we're, we're even better than the regular apostles. We're super apostles. And we're better than Paul. We have more gifts. We have more training. We're showier. We speak better. We're smarter. Listen to us. And so Paul is saying, listen, I, I, I put up with just stupid me for just a second. Put up with my foolishness. Uh, I may not be the smartest guy in the room, but I care for you more than these other guys. I am like, I am like the father of the bride that's bringing her down the aisle that wants to present her to her husband, a pure and spotless virgin. Every father, I think, should be jealous for his children. Now, you may be, in our minds, you, you see the word jealousy and it rings a bad connotation. There's a, there's a difference between being jealous of something and being jealous for something. And what Paul is painting here is, I am jealous that you will achieve the destiny for which God redeemed you and made you. You are his bride and I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to fight for you. God says in Exodus 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them. He's talking about other gods or other idols or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I am jealous for your undivided, pure devotion to me. Throughout Scripture, the church is pictured as the bride of Christ, and there's a reason for that. Because Paul is jealous for them. Another way that we can put it, he's passionate about maintaining the purity of the church. Steve Zeisler writes this. He says, Paul came to Corinth and became their spiritual father, and the church that was born in Corinth was readied as a bride for her husband. 
Now, since the Lord had not yet returned, they should be waiting patiently, growing in love with their beloved, looking forward to the day when the bridegroom would come for the bride. But instead, they were being seduced by good-looking, fast-talking, spiritual gigolos who were turning the head of the bride. They were listening to voices that offered other opportunities, seducing them away from the one for whom they were intended. Sometime last summer, one of my daughters came to me and said that there was a young man who wanted to take her out. Um, and wanted to, in turn, date her. Now, we have some ideas about dating. Some of them, I know, are antiquated. And, um, but you know what? I don't give a flip. Uh, you know, really, I, I, I'm, I, my, my, my idea is that I want to raise up godly children. Uh, and so I said to her, okay, I, you know, we, we have some things that we've try to instill in our kids, like, uh, don't even bother to date someone if they're not possible for marriage. Why waste your time? Um, things like that. We've, I've tried to speak to them over the years. So I said to her, she knew that if this guy wanted to take her out, that he was going to have to come talk to me just to take her out. I know this is not like permission to marry, but it could be, right, if this guy... Anyway, so the guy comes, and um, I ask some initial questions like, uh, tell me about your family. Um, where do you go to church? Who is the pastor of that church? You know, one of the things I've learned is people will tell you what church to go to, but if they can't tell you the name of the pastor, they don't go there all that often. <laughs> so I usually ask, who's the, who's the pastor that goes, who's your pastor? Uh, I can't remember. No, he didn't do that, but <laughs> I've, heard that in the, I've heard that in the past. Um, what do you enjoy doing? How long have you been driving? How many tickets have you gotten? Things like that. And so I, I'm, I'm, I've shared this before with some of you, but uh, here's a list of some of the questions. Now, I borrowed some of these things that, um, from other places, but here are the things that I told him, if you want to take out my daughter. And these, this is true. I sat down with this guy and went through these with him. So here are some of them. My daughter's priceless to me. I expect you to treat her as such. I expect you to keep her safe and not put her in any dangerous situations. No drugs or alcohol ever. Uh, if you get in a situation where you're uncomfortable or need any help of any kind, call me anytime, day or night. Whatever curfew I give to my daughter, I expect you to help us meet it. Call if something happens that will delay. And I went through this a little longer, by the way. Calling after you're already late is not considered a delay. That's an excuse. I know that game. Do not play it. Uh, beforehand is the delay. Uh, our preference at your age is that you do things in groups or with other people. Uh, physical attraction is normal, but a physical relationship is reserved for marriage. Can I get an amen somewhere? Um, I'm going to hold you accountable for how you treat her. Most <laughs> people I know love this one. Most high school dating relationships don't end in marriage. In other words, I'm saying to him, I, I know you aren't, two aren't going to get married. Um, I've encouraged my daughter to guard her heart, but at the time, if and when you feel like this is over, be honest. Uh, if you get to that point, just be honest. Don't play some game. Then the final one is, do you understand? Tell me what you've heard me say. 
three. I, I went back through them. I said, if you missed one, I said, hey, you missed uh, this one. So they still went out for a little while. Here, here's, the, here's the point. We need to guard ourselves. We need to guard ourselves. We need to guard our hearts. Uh, we need to guard the truth. We need to guard the truth like a father guards his daughter. Stay devoted only to Christ. Passionately guard the truth. Passionately guard the truth in your life. If you don't stay on your guard, the truth can easily be lost. Second picture. So the first picture is of a jealous guardian, a passionate dad. Just think of the picture of the father presenting the bride to the groom. The second picture here is of a person deceived. It is the ease of deception. Verses 3 through 5. It says, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He's saying, listen, Eve was easily deceived. I mean, think about it. Eve was in the garden. Perfect situation. I mean, perfect, right? You think, if all my life were perfect, I couldn't be deceived. You know, if the, the, the problem I have is trying to sort through the maze of ideas and problems and issues, and I'm making a wrong choice here or there because I got so many problems. Listen, Eve had it perfect and was deceived. He says, if Eve could get deceived, and look how easily he says she was deceived, you too stand in danger of being deceived and led astray. Now, if Eve is the example, and I'm just going to go through these points real quick, it had to do with God's word. When the enemy comes to Eve, what techniques did he use in order to lead her astray? I mean, if you remember the story, he comes to her, and the first thing he does is he questions God's word. And this is in Genesis 3. You can read it. He said, he says to Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? And that's the first step in deception and leading us away from the truth is this idea that we can question the word of God. Did God really say? Now, there's a difference, I believe, between trying to fully understand the word of God, understand the word of God in context, in life, and understand what God is saying and questioning, did God really say? And we live in an age where people want to justify the way they live their lives. So over and over they say, did God really say? Is this God or did some guy just think of this? He doesn't stop there. He then changes God's word. Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Do you get the slight, subtle change that... Remember the story God said to Adam and Eve, hey, here's the garden, take care of it, tend it. Here are these two trees in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from them. So the enemy, when he comes to Eve, he says just enough, but then he twists it. 
And he said, did God say, really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Notice how he's expanding the word of God beyond what God had said. And Eve's response, she's now just, she's trapped. She's trapped because now what she does is she starts changing the word of God. She starts changing it as well. Well, he didn't say we couldn't eat of any tree. So now she's correcting the enemy. He said we couldn't eat of this tree or, and we can't touch it or we'll surely die. Now she's adding to. She's changing because God didn't say don't ever touch it. He just said don't eat of it. Leads down the path to eventually denying God's word. Satan then just outright says to her, Hey, that's not true. You won't die. As a matter of fact, it'll be better for you. The enemy is calling God a liar and denying his word. We live in an age where the fundamentals of who God is and what Jesus did for us on the cross are always constantly being called into question because really the enemy, he's slick, but he doesn't change the tactics that he uses that much. And it generally goes back to trying to alter or deny or get us away from God's truth. Eventually, he just replaces God's word. Not only will you not die, but once you eat it, it's going to be better. You'll be like God. I mean, the enemy didn't ask Eve to worship him. Basically, what is the enemy asking? He's saying, did God really say? He adds to the word, changes it, replaces it. He's basically saying to Eve, this will lead to a worship of yourself. You'll be like God. You'll be like God. His goal, his goal, he doesn't, he, he just wants the replacement of worship of God. He knows that if we worship ourselves, that ultimately we're, we're, we're going down the road to worship him. I, I, I believe we need to be on guard all the time because we are constantly in danger of being deceived. Again, if Eve could get deceived in a perfect situation, what about us? The most dangerous place to be, by the way, is to say, I, I couldn't possibly be deceived. You're deceived already. And the problem with being deceived is no one thinks they're deceived. No one says, you know, I'm so deceived. I'm just believing a lie and I'm riding this train right to, you know. There are so many extremes when it comes to the word of God. There's legalism, that idea of adding to the word of God. It's Jesus plus something else. There's the idea of license that once I get Jesus, I really don't need to worry about the way I live. I can do whatever I please because I got Jesus. There's really this danger of another Jesus where people use the name of Jesus, but it's not the same Jesus. I mean, there are many religions out there. The people who knock on your door want to give you a handout. Jehovah's Witness, come to your door, knock on your door. I've said this before, if you really want to just go right to the heart of things, just ask him about Jesus. 
was Jesus God in the flesh? Just ask him that question. Your conversation with them will not go far. Why? Because to me, they're proclaiming another Jesus. It is not the same Jesus. There are some critical aspects to who God is, who Jesus is. If Jesus is not God, then just a good man died on the cross. And a good man dying on the cross could not be sinless and could not save us from our sins. We're hopeless. The gospel hinges on these truths. We need to guard the truth. The Bible, to me, the message of the gospel is clear. Look, there's a lot of things we can argue about that are going to be different. You know, I mean, the, the, God, the, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how to do church. I mean, we can do church different and all be happy, but the Bible does tell us who Jesus is, what he did, what it accomplished. I mean, if you're not reading Romans, go back to Romans right now and read Romans 1 through 5. The heart of the gospel is all right there of who Jesus is and how we come to him. The ease of deception in this age. Third point is this. A handsome stranger. The enemy is a master of disguise. Here's what Paul says. I'm going to read you two different versions of verses 12 through 15 of 2 Corinthians 11. First, he says, and I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. I mean, what is he saying here? He's saying, look, Satan is a, he's a master of disguise. He's not going to come to you as something opposite. That's easy to spot. He's going to come to you as an angel of light. He's going to look close enough that you think this is of God, but it's, it's not of God. Here's how Eugene Peterson in the message puts it, a little more forthright. I'm just trying to keep things open and honest between us. That's scary when anyone says that, by the way. I just want to be honest with you. All right, let's buckle up. Something's going to be going on here. And I'm not changing my position on this. I'd die before taking your money. I'm giving nobody grounds for lumping me in with those money-grubbing preachers, vaunting themselves as something special. They're a sorry bunch, pseudo-apostles, lying preachers, crooked workers, posing as God's agents, but sham to the core. And no wonder. Satan does it all the time, dressing up as a beautiful angel of light. So it shouldn't surprise us when his servants masquerade as servants of God. But they're not getting by with it not getting by with anything. They'll pay for it in the end. Robert Daffenball says this. He says, Satan does not come to us as the arch enemy of God, the ultimate evildoer. He comes disguised as an angel of light, not as one who promotes evil. He would rather look like Mother Teresa than Charles Manson. If the arch enemy of God operates by deceit and disguise, why should we expect his underlings to be different from their master? They too come to us disguised as servants of righteousness, or as Jesus said, as wolves in sheep's clothing. 
In August of 2010, a husband and a wife in Germany, Helene and Wolfgang Beltraki, were arrested at their $7 million estate just outside of Freiburg, Germany. Wolfgang Beltraki was an artist whose paintings hung in most of the world's great art galleries. He had paintings in the Met in New York City and the Hermitage, and hundreds of paintings hung in private collections around the world. There's only one problem. They were all forgeries. For 40 years, Wolfgang Beltraki had been painting forgeries of famous 18th, 19th, and 20th century artists. He had gone to great extent to hide his forgeries, and hundreds of his paintings hung around the world. He had made somewhere between 40 and 100 million dollars selling forgeries. He was only caught because a tube of paint that he had purchased was not properly labeled and it contained a zinc in it that was not found in the paintings that he claimed to have painted or were being sold from a different period. Does that make sense? In other words, when they're trying to authenticate paintings, they'll actually take a little bit of the paint, they'll test the chemicals to see if this paint was from that period, and the paint he had bought was mislabeled, so it contained a chemical that was not available in the time frame of the painting that he had for. Even today, even after getting caught, he served four years in, print, in prison, he and his wife, Helene. The extent they went to to create this backdrop of forgeries, uh, he was smart enough to never paint. He wasn't copying an exact photo, picture. What he would do is he'd find an artist who had like a down period of his life, and he'd paint a new painting of this guy from that period with a whole history that went in involved with it. It fooled everybody. It fooled the world's greatest uh, art experts, fooled scientists for many years. As a matter of fact, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes uh, a couple of years ago, and he and his wife, they're laughing it up. He's a very charismatic, uh, very brilliant painter and con artist who is totally unrepentant in what he's done. He says, there are paintings of mine still hanging in the great art galleries of the world. He said, I was in one the other day, he says in the interview. I walked by and I said, hey, there's my painting. It's got another person's name on it, but he did it. His brilliance was in making it look as close as possible to the real, but it wasn't real. You see, that's what the enemy does. He wants to go right up to the line. He's a master of disguise. He masquerades as an angel of light. And he wants to take us right up to the line, but he doesn't want us to cross over into the gospel of who Jesus is and what he wants to do for us. I, I, I want to encourage us to hang on to the truth. Hang on to the truth. Because not everybody who's on television and says they have a church is giving you the truth. You cannot have your best life now and not have it in Jesus. It has to be in Christ.
It's not about what you can accomplish through your own strength and own might and the power of your mind trying to determine how your life is going to go. It's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you see somebody healing people, but they're getting glory for themselves rather than pointing glory to Jesus or God, stay away. Do it. Should I go on? <laughs> people we we are so easily fooled and the enemy he's gonna disguise himself as something close to so that we're in danger of getting pulled away from the pure true devotion of christ we have these two powerful truths that paul reiterates in this if someone comes to you preaching another jesus stay away from them if they try to give you another spirit other than the Holy Spirit, get away from them. Why? Because God has given us these two powerful truths that, that provide us with truth. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's, by the way, uh, a picture of, I'm, I'm behind on my illustrations. There's him smiling over one of his forgeries. He's really happy about it. If you made 40 to $100 million, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. How? Except through him. He is the truth. He is the word. He is the word incarnate, the word made flesh. But when the spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, he will guide you into all truth. And 2 Timothy says, through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. I want to encourage you as, you as we go from this place today to think of these three pictures, to hold them in our head as we look at the truth. The first is that of that jealous guardian, the father who brings the bride down, who, who is jealously battled for her. That's how we need to battle for truth. The person deceived. How easy it is for any of us to be like Eve in the garden and to be led into deception by questioning or replacing or challenging in a way that makes the Word of God less than it really is. And to be on guard against the master of disguise who is constantly going to be coming at us trying to lead us lead us astray let us hang on to the truth of God's word because only in God's truth is there really really life lord we thank you this morning i thank you for the words of paul who could boldly just launch out into these truths that, that say the truth matters because the truth brings life. And so, Lord, this morning, I, I pray for us that, Holy Spirit, your presence would be manifest in this place so that we know, we know what the truth of God is. We hang on to it. Lord, show us in our lives where we can easily get tripped up or deceived. Lord, we want to bring you all glory and all praise, all honor. 
If indeed Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, may our relationship with Jesus, the Word made flesh, be living and vital. Spirit of God, indwell us and fill us. May we hang on to your truth, O Lord. Your head's bowed. We're just gonna we're gonna move into a time where we pray for one another. Uh, we, if you're new to fullness, this is a time of ministry. If you can't.